So, college football this weekend. Finally, we uh, we made it. It's been months without real football, and uh, we're, we're this close. We're this close. And, like, real football with us crowds and bands and the whole nine. So, <laughs> it'll be fun. Yeah. It'll be fun to watch the same four teams make the college football playoffs again. Hey, they're going to expand the playoffs, and then it'll be the same eight teams or whatever. I don't know. Well, uh, I think there's going to be rules attached to it because, you know, of all the conference realignment with uh, Texas OU going to the SEC and the what, Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC having some sort of non-binding, non, non-written-down agreement. Yeah, I think we should just have, like, kind of like the NFL where you have, like, four major geographic areas, right? So, like, the East Coast minus, you know, Georgia, Florida. So, like, Clemson and all them on the East. Then you have, like, a Midwest Conference with all the Big Ten teams. The West Conference with Pac-12. But, like, they need to poach some of the Texas schools because – some of the Big 12 schools, I should say, because the only two schools worthwhile left. So – yeah, it'll be interesting. I just hope. I kind of hope. I mean, obviously, I've, you know, graduating from a, a smaller school, Liberty's only been you know FBS for I think this will be the third year. Like of a full FBS membership. I hope they whatever they do, it allows for like new programs to realistically get to the top tier of college football. Because you look even at like like Cincinnati, you know, who who played well against Georgia in their bowl game. Um, but they never had a realistic side of the playoffs. You know, a few years ago, UCF, who beat Auburn in a bowl game, like, they're never going to win it coming out of the AAC. So, uh, however they do the playoff expansion and conference realignment when it all takes out, uh, I don't know, I hope, it, I hope it creates some sort of realistic avenue for small schools if they get a good coach to realistically, you know, get, get yeah. some of those playoff spots. Yeah, I think if you're a Division One school, you should have a shot at the Division One championship, no matter where you are. Uh, yeah. So, I think all the division winners, or conference winners, I should say, all the conference winners should be put in a tournament. And I think that makes it, I think that's 10, and then you do two at-larges, and you have a 12-team playoff. I think that's yeah. plenty fair. Mississippi State's coach, uh, Mike Leach, he wants a 10-game regular season no conference championship and a 64 team playoff. And within that you'll find a champion in 15, I think 15 or 16 games. So, Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard for football because football's a much tougher sport to play multiple times a week uh, or month, even a month. Uh, so you can't really run it like basketball, but I would love that. I would love a huge tournament where we just find out who the best teams in college are. Like, I wouldn't mind, like, a four-game, like, preseason, and then the entire season is just one giant tournament of single elimination. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it'll is, be like, interesting. You would miss out on a lot of rivalries. Like, it'd be hard to to, to schedule those rivalries so early uh, in, the, in the – like, if you only had a short regular season. But college football is cool because they can experiment. They don't have to run the NFL model, and I don't mind – I don't mind that they do things differently – I just mind that, like, it's what you said, like, smaller schools have no chance. You can be the best small school in the nation, and you have zero chance at a championship, and that's just doesn't feel right. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I, I think they need to go, like, I feel like they're getting closer and closer, basically, to the NFL model with, you know, now NIL and, uh, 
transfer rules, um, and then the, the season just kind of continuing to get longer and longer. Um, I think they need to keep a distinct model from the NFL. I mean, college football is appreciated for what it is, and a lot of it is tradition rivalries, um, and every game matters, you know, um, more so than the NFL, where the Super Bowl winner is going to have maybe four or five losses most years. So I have to say, however they do it, they need to still kind of keep keep some of the peculiarities of college football alive because I think that's what drives the sport to be successful. Speaking of traditions, both good and bad, <laughs> our main topic tonight is the tradition of American interventionism throughout the world. And the we were going to do a different topic this week. We've been wanting to talk about CRT, especially with schools going back into session. But man, Afghanistan just can't quit us. And we can't quit it. And it's been a not only crazy, but I mean, over the last few days, what I think it happened on what Thursday or Friday, the uh, suicide bombing. Just, yep. It, yeah, I think the entire pullout has been an encapsulation of the last twenty years, and in in two weeks, and it it really goes to show what happens when uh, you don't have a plan. And I mean that for both Afghanistan in the last 20 years and the pullout. So that'll be the main topic tonight. We are the 1v1 Deep State Podcast. I'm Jake Lane at The Rake, but the A's a four on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Thomas Black at Thomas Black underscore 86. We are two veterans of the Afghanistan war, one Marine, one Air Force. So we both know I'm not an expert in Afghanistan history or or an expert on the war in general i would say but i mean i was there i know enough about the people and the geography and the quote-unquote strategy that we were employing there uh and you have your own takes on that and your own experience on that um and you being a marine i'm sure this last week has hit extra hard because we lost you know 12 marines in a yeah double digits uh so we're going to get into all that, but just off the top, we'll start with your feelings on what has happened since the suicide bombings. Yeah, goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess let's go back a little further because when we spoke about this, I guess, what, two weeks ago, I mean, we, we all, at least we kind of in, intro to some, um, and then that was our first podcast, obviously was the Afghanistan war, um, but just so much on the pullout has went wrong, even though I think the pullout is right. Um, but I, th- I think one of the big things, you know, that that's really frustrated me is, you know, after president Biden finally made his first comments about um, the pullout and not, not even the pullout, but just, Hey, how quickly the Afghan government fell. Um, he's like, Hey, we didn't think it would happen this quick, but now it's come out. He had quite a bit of intelligence saying, this thing could fall apart in less than 30 days um, and still chose to make the decisions that were made um, on how we're going to pull out. Um, and that's, that's disappointing because like we said in our first episode, you know, getting the linguists that supported us out, making sure Americans had a chance to get out. All of those things were going to be needed to be priority as we're leaving um, and to not have a plan to, to, um, have that happen and have those people get evacuated more peacefully and successfully um, has kind of led to this, this chaos 
Um, and for me, it's just, okay, if you lie to me once, you'll lie to me twice and you'll lie to me a third time. So when he's saying like, oh, we've got all Americans out, oh, we've got everybody out we wanted to, at this point, I think you're lying. Um, and some of the tragedy of that is, as the government, your main responsibility is to protect the life, liberty, and property of your people. So when you have U.S. citizens in Afghanistan trying to get out, they should be able to trust their government to, to get them out. Um, so the fact that that hasn't happened and hasn't been successful to me is unacceptable. But what ultimately has to change in all of this is the American people have to say this is a failed pullout resulting from a failed um, foreign policy that hasn't served us well in any capacity over the past 75 years. So it doesn't do anybody any good to just get mad about this and forget about it come 2022 when we elect congressmen and women and forget about it in 2024 when we elect a president. Like, this has to bother people enough to make them critically analyze our foreign policy. And if it doesn't, we're going to see the same thing in 50 years, just in some other region of the world. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be an election topic in 20. I mean, I think it will be, but I don't think it'll matter in 2024. Unfortunately, uh, stuff that happens early in a term almost never affects the end of the term. I think that's why there was a, I'm going to use quotes here, big push on, social media twitter uh of people calling for him to resign or impeachment because that's the only way that's the only way it's going to affect his re-election chances is if they actually kick him out now which is obviously never going to happen uh if a i put it on twitter if a if a president of the united states stepped down every time service members died under their watch in a in a pointless conflict uh you know we would we would be having lots of we'd be going through politicians quick uh, not to defend Biden on, on that point, but like, it, it was just a silly notion that would never actually happen. So I I'm cynical on that. I don't think it's going to affect his 2024 chances at all. Uh, I know that some people are bringing up 2022 based on redistricting, redistricting based on just the way these things normally go. The opposite party always loses seats the following election. Uh, so I'm not, I was never, expecting uh the democrats to hold congress longer than or even i mean i wasn't even expecting them to have the senate so i wasn't expecting them to hold either beyond 2022 so that's kind of a diversion from the what the main point of is it a failed pullout i mean we're out it wasn't a good pullout but it, i don't know if it's failed we're not there anymore well i mean yeah i guess if, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so to that point it depends on how you look at it right yeah did we get the entire military out yes um did we do it in a way that protected citizens that um gave those who supported us over the last 20 years um, a real chance of getting out if they chose to get out if they wanted to get out um and quite honestly and, and you know this because i mean you were enlisted in the military as as was i Good. Here, here's here's kind of I, I got just um, what's the correct word to use for the general public? I got uh, disciplined um, effectively in boot camp because I left a canteen when we got in formation. I left it on the ground. We've left tons of military equipment. I don't think it was to support the Afghan military. Like I don't think this is like, hey, here's this to support you. I think we just got out so quickly we left 
billions of dollars worth of military equipment into the hands of a wicked government. And to me, that's why I would say we have the military proficiency to have pulled out in a way that did not need to leave so much equipment, um, so many munitions and so many allies and U.S. citizens behind. Um, so, so I think in that regard, I mean, you could have pulled out more successfully um, and stayed true to, to the role of government. But something I do want to hit on, because we all, I mean, obviously the, the, the topic is bigger than just Afghanistan. The topic is yeah, American yeah. foreign policy, specifically American interventionalism. And the reason I think it does matter that um, we both look cynically on how this affects 2022 in Congress. Does it even matter? Congress has already ceded so many powers that they're supposed to be in place for checks and balances in government that even if you put an entirely different Congress in there, what's to stop us? This wasn't a declared war. Iraq wasn't a declared war. Vietnam wasn't a declared war. Korea wasn't a declared war. Like Congress is kind of willingly, um, and at the time, for the sake of patriotism and supporting the president, just giving away so much of its authority that even if we changed all of Congress, they're going to have to um, break with 75 years of tradition and foreign policy thinking for it to actually matter and to, to be that that check on the executive branch. And I don't know that they actually want to or are willing to. Yeah, Obama lost Congress in 2010. He was still the president for another six years and service members were dying in Afghanistan over those six years with the Republican Congress and they still didn't change anything. There's nothing, yeah. like you said, there's not, there's nothing to change. The, this wasn't a real war. I mean, they could stop funding the military, but that's political suicide. So, especially on the right. Yeah. Yeah. We, Congress has backed themselves into these situations and uh, yeah, I think this is a, a, another bullet point, but I just kind of want to go with the Afghanistan off the top because it's been the most recent. Back to what you were saying, the only rebuttal I have, and this is not necessarily a defense of, of Biden per se, I think all of this was handled very poorly in a very, it's a self-owned for no reason. None of this had to go this way. Uh, I think, I think what you're saying about government's role and like the military's role in protecting U.S. citizens is obviously correct. I think we could have probably held Kabul, even if we let the rest of the country get taken over, we could have held Kabul without the Taliban there and had a much more orderly evac. That being said, all this stuff about like, we need to get the Americans out. We need the people who helped us out. We've been there for 20 years. Biden announced this pullout months ago, basically at the beginning of his term. Any Americans who were there were willingly there. They didn't, this isn't, this didn't come as a surprise that we were pulling out, uh, you know, by, by September 11th, this this is August. So it's not like we were Congress has Congress had a bill still going through Congress about getting all of our, all the interpreters and all the people who helped us out. Like, I don't even think that's through the Senate yet. Uh, so there, I think on, on the flip side of it, Biden is, has his hands tied somewhat about who he's allowed to bring to the United States, obviously. Uh, He can't just unilaterally make that decision. So I think a lot of that 
I think obviously they were all of everybody was under the assumption that Taliban wouldn't retake over immediately. And when the things changed, those Americans decided to change their mind and wanted to get out. I'm fully, that's fine. But I think a lot of this of like, oh my God, we were leaving Americans there. It's like no Americans who were there, like didn't understand what the situation was on the ground. When you're on the ground in Afghanistan, you very clearly understand what is going on around you. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see what all Americans were there as far as like it's got to be like NGOs and stuff like it wasn't it wasn't like families vacationing to Kabul. Sure, no, but from my knowledge, actually, it's NGOs, missionaries, things like that. But 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 the argument I would have is, I mean, President Biden certainly had information to know that that Afghanistan could fall and it can fall quickly and, and really without warning, you know. I think most people, and I was, I was in this, I was in this group. Most people thought there would be uh, more of a gradual increase in the temperature, if you will. And this thing went from room temperature to boiling in seconds. Yeah. Um, and President Biden knew that was an option. I knew that was a possibility. Um, and that to me is where, if I think that's a possibility, I at least need to let people know like this could go poorly quickly. Um, and there may be a point where, we won't be able to get you out. So this is kind of the last call. Um, and even to like specifically, you know, like I'm thinking linguists and, and those who help us out in that way. Um, although there are, there are other categories, sure. But um, I can certainly, I don't know if President Biden was lying to us or not when he said this, but I could certainly see the argument that they said, listen, I fought with you for 20 years not to become an American, but so Afghanistan would be better. I want to see this thing through. Right. Not assuming that the government would willingly collapse and surrender. So now you've got men of valor, women of valor who wanted to protect their country, who wanted to stand with the Afghan military after we left and defend, only to, to, to quickly realize that their government didn't have their back. Their government didn't want to protect and defend Afghanistan. And now what do they do? Sure. But and I think on, that those. This goes this kind of goes into American interventionism. How much is how much are we responsible for when the government of Afghanistan doesn't, doesn't stand up at all? Like not even a little bit, no resistance. Like at some point I listen, I think that the American citizen thing is absolutely valid. That's literally what the military is for, uh, is to protect American citizens. At some point, the Afghanistan military was going to have to stand up on its own and it didn't. And so the Taliban took back over and that's, that's, that's on them. I don't think that's on us. Like it's just us leaving billions behind in equipment. Sure. I'm, you know, I could go either way with that, whatever. Uh, it definitely wasn't an orderly pullout, but it wasn't the same as Iraq where Iraq actually had government. They had government systems in place. They had a history of governing the entire country. Uh, Afghanistan is yeah. a completely different beast. Mm hmm. I don't know if, like, when the government fell and the Taliban retook Kabul, like, what does sending more American troops do at that point? Are we just going to be hostile with the Taliban to force them out and we're going to go through more firefights? We're going to have another Fallujah? Uh, like, what is what was the plan after that? I, I don't – I think the situation definitely went bad. The planning was not uh, as good as I'd hope it would be. I'll say actively the plan was not was not good. But I think once Kabul fell to the Taliban, like we basically made the best of a bad situation. The suicide bombing was, I feel like, is inevitable given the crowd sizes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I obviously 
it's obviously terrible that happened. I don't think there's a way you can prevent that from happening. Everybody on the on the news, on the news, not not just our intelligence agencies, on the news was saying there's going to be a suicide bombing today. Like everybody knew it was happening. Uh, yeah. There's only so much you can do with crowds that size. Uh, but we we, I the last numbers I saw was like 105,000. We evacuated 105,000 people. If we weren't able to get every single ally out. That sucks. I know that should be the goal, but it, that's not realistic given the situation. We should be able to get every American out who wants to get out. I completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think it's obviously going to be seen as a huge failure, but I think we should be able to find the successes inside that failure. Um, I, I wish 13 service members didn't die. That that really puts a... if if Again, I think the suicide bombing was inevitable given the, given the soft the softest of the target. It was the softest of soft targets with crowds that big. But I think that given the circumstances, getting 107,000 people out or 105,000 people out, getting all the Americans out uh, that wanted to get out. If we believe that is, is actually a, a pretty, a pretty big success given the circumstances. Well, uh, um, so where do I go with this? So I think, the only way we can write this as a success is if there's actual foreign policy change. And I'm only going to hit this for, for a second. Um, but, but we have to recognize that there is no foreign policy shift of any significance from President Trump to President Obama. I'm sorry, from President Bush to President Obama to President Trump. Um, and now President Biden's getting out of Afghanistan. And it's to be determined if he actually sees um, and is able to create a new foreign policy that will that will last um so it, it doesn't this is only a success if we can look at this and say we you know where did we fail and we didn't fail a month ago or two months ago um i mean i, I would argue in hindsight it's 2020 and i'm not going to hit this too hard but i would argue we failed 20 years ago when we got in, engaged in a large-scale military conflict without a clear vision or clear principles that would help us determine how, how does this play out? Is this enemy going to recognize and agree they're defeated and no longer be a threat? I mean, there are a number of points and issues you can you can look at and say, is large-scale military engagement the best way to respond to 9-11? And if we don't change our way of thinking, then this is really just a tragedy um, because it's going to be other service members in another place Um for possibly unnecessary reasons moving forward. But I think with regards to the pullout, and I think this could have been even helpful for, for you know, um, you know, any, any U.S. citizens there or whatnot. But, I mean, to kind of be very simplistic, like when you're, when you're taking ground for the enemy, you know, one of the common tactics on the ground is something called bounding. So it's basically you run up 10, 15 feet, and then you get down to get cover. But while you're running up, your guys behind you and he's engaging the enemy with fire. Um, and then you keep slowly taking ground like that. Well, a retreat works very similar. You just run the opposite direction, um, but you're still taking fire. So when you think about pulling out, pull out like that, where you're getting all of your supplies, you're getting all of your um, people out. And you can even, even in Kabul, for instance, I mean, when you're like giving full responsibility to the Afghan military. Um, and if that is immediately being taken by the Taliban, 
um, which was the case for, for us. I mean, we left my patrol base and within three days, Taliban had it, um, which is why it wasn't a surprise to most service members that this happened. But, I mean, at that point, the American citizens see, hey, look, every time the American military leaves, the Afghans don't fight. It goes completely under Taliban control. We know this is going to happen. But when you pull out, when you give so much ground so quickly, um, and I think in a lot of ways so carelessly, there's no time to see the writing on the wall. There's no time to um, plan or discern or do anything. And I think that's where it was just so the pullout was a long time coming, but the execution was so hasty. Um, that's what I think. I mean, that's what I think the biggest failure was. And to me, it wouldn't have been as bad um, if President Biden really was uh, completely unaware that this could happen. But it seems like he knew this was a very realistic opportunity, a, a possibility. And, and that's where all decision makers, I mean, ha- I mean, they have to be held accountable. And if, if, if we're not going to hold leaders accountable, what's the point of a democracy? I mean, we may as well have any other form of government. And, and sadly, I think with, with regards to a number of issues, we may as well have any other form of government because we accept empty promises. Yeah, I mean, I, ca- I kind of gave a preview of it. But they're going to try to spin this as a success. That That's just politics, man. I don't know. Yeah, but on a, I mean, as a we everybody makes the parallel with Vietnam, right? Like we were in Vietnam forever. It's we had the the Saigon escape, the, uh, the Saigon airlift, which was a very similar. Like Biden even said, this isn't going to be a Vietnam situation, and it <laughs> absolutely was. As soon as Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese. The communists took over, which was our greatest fear. They were going to align themselves with with, uh, the Soviet Union. That never happened. Like, all of our fears, the entire point of being there, it never really came to fruition. And it's very... I get the very similar vibes of Afghanistan, where it's like, well, if if we're not here, then Al-Qaeda and terrorists are going to take over this country. And it's like, no, it's the exact opposite. Like going there invited more terrorists to come and try to, you know, it, it created the chaos, the vacuum, the, the leadership, much like Iraq and Syria later on. Like when you neuter the actual people with power in the country, that lets the terrorists and the, the bad actors in. Uh, and we've just, we've had this policy of interventionism for, I mean, what? I would say 75 years. Uh, I I was going to go even further. I mean, Spanish American war. Yeah. I was going to say, I I think you can make a, I think you can make a valid argument. um, For like, you know, president Roosevelt, president Teddy Roosevelt's a great white fleet. Right. Um, I, I think, I think more aggressive interventionalism came at the end of world war two where we felt we needed to be everywhere every time to prevent. Yeah. I mean, could we, and again, I, I get the thinking at the time we came off of two world wars in 30 years, but we've got 75 years of data now to suggest there might be a better way. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we had like a brief period where we tried to be non-interventionist. Uh, we tried to hold out of the world war one for as long as we could. 
Mm-hmm. We tried. I mean, the inter- the corporate interests eventually took over, I feel like. And we got we got into that got into World War One very heavily. Uh but then World War Two really was when we kicked it into gear. And I th- I think you're right. I think I think we saw World War Two as an opportunity to expand our influence given, you know, we were we were in Japan, we were all over Europe. Uh all of those nations had suffered pretty heavily during the war. Not to say that uh, Americans didn't suffer casualties in World War II, but like we were a pretty fresh and fit fighting force. I mean, we weren't we weren't fighting for a decade. We were fighting for a few years uh, in both theaters of operation. So we were we were the big global might at that time. Like even even the USSR took a huge amount of casualties. They were not they were not in any shape to be the world police. I would say. I think mm-hmm. we just kind of took that we took that mantle because we were. I mean, it was it was a heavy dose of American exceptionalism. Don't get me wrong, but also because we were probably at that point in time the most uh, powerful and I don't know fresh, quote unquote, fresh fighting force still available. So I f- I think we were kind of seen as uh, the most capable of being the world police at the time. And I use world police. I use world police very facetiously. As in, like, it's our job to make sure that the world is in good working order. Yeah, well, man, actually, I, think, I think you make a fair point with, with regards to the, um, just to, just our, our military at the time. You know, because, like I say, we didn't have, uh, I mean, other countries are fighting two or three times as longer than we, well, that's probably a bit of a stretch. But, I mean, you look at the, the beginning of hostilities for uh, um, Germany, you know, starting in the late 30s, um, and we didn't get involved until late 41. Um, you know, but I think between, between that, between at the end of the war, us being the only ones who had a nuclear weapon, um, and the fact that our, our infrastructure was, um, untouched, you know, whereas Europe, Africa, Asia, their infrastructure was destroyed. Even the USSR, I mean, they, they fought battles on their own land and that has an effect on your ability to make war, to establish an economy, um. And, and to win. So I think you're right. I think that there was opportunity there um, without, I mean, really with no competition militarily or economically because everybody else is falling apart. So, right. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference when you're fighting a war on somebody else's soil, right? Like we didn't have to rebuild in America. Like they hit Pearl Harbor, but they didn't, we didn't, we didn't get an entire city wiped off the map like Dresden or Tokyo firebombings. Like we didn't have to, a lot of rebuilding to do at home. We had already geared up this huge war machine to pump out supplies. So yeah, I think we were just the we were the most equipped to handle that role at the time, and I think we took advantage of that. Yeah, we, we did. Um, and, and again, I think at this point, it's not like it's um, like I said, it's not like it's it's not like it's the '60s where we saw. Um, bad government with bad intentions to to essentially conquer the world. Um, we just got out of two world wars, and now we feel like we have to have a presence everywhere to combat the Soviet influence. Right? I mean, it's just not. It's not that we only have a decade or two of uh, trying to think about is this the right course of action. We have multiple decades, and I just kind of run through you know a few things um, within the past. 10 to 15 years that have gone poorly 
One, you hit on already. Um, when you go in and topple government, you create a vacuum, and oftentimes it's worse than when you started. That was the case with Iraq. Um, it's to be determined what's going to happen with Afghanistan. Um, but we did, I mean, we said in our first podcast, we have to understand this creates a vacuum, and we need to be okay with that and not say we need to go do something because a bad person filled it. Um, but it was the case in Syria. Like, you know, we topple um, Gaddafi there, and now it's just absolute chaos. That's um, Libya. I'm sorry, yeah. Libya, not, not Syria, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Libya. Yeah. Um, just absolute chaos um, in Libya now. You look at the way we intervened, um, even in Venezuela. Um, and then the Republicans especially want to act surprised when we have this huge surge of immigrants trying to come to America because we kicked over a hornet's nest. Now we're mad that the hornets are flying. Um, There's just not a good track record of us intervening in somebody else's business when it doesn't affect us and then good things happening. Like we're not safer. We aren't um, more prosperous. I'm failing to see the successes. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I think I think using it as a or trying to measure it as how much does it affect us or help us. We saw a ton. I mean, the 60s, 60s, 70s, 80s was like pretty peak interventionism uh, for America. And it was more clandestine than it was outright war other than Vietnam, I would say. Uh, but it really, I mean, Korea, the Korean War was the first big world police action for us, right? Like immediately mm-hmm. following World War II, we go in, the North Koreans invade South Korea. We send our, I mean, this is kind of a a precursor to Vietnam and Afghanistan, I would say, in a direct a direct parallel. We we send troops over there. We don't we don't really have an end goal. We 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 beat the North Koreans and Chinese back almost to the Chinese border. Mm-hmm. If people don't understand the the geography of Korea, uh, we had about ninety percent of the country held at one point. Mm-hmm. And but there was what what was we never had an end game strategy. There was never a are we gonna are are we going to push the Koreans and the Chinese out entirely? Are we gonna invade China? Like there was no clear strategy. So what happened was they ended up pushing the American forces back to where the reset was, basically the exact same line of demarcation there was between the two countries to begin with, and we negotiated a ceasefire and we left with basically nothing changed. Uh, that is, I mean, that was our, our pretty much first big police action outside of World War II. And we left it in a, just the same as we found it basically. I mean, we're, don't get me wrong. We're soft for the most part, uh, but like nothing changed, nothing changed. We didn't, we didn't change their, the North Korean leadership. We didn't change the boundaries. Uh, we basically, protected south korea which is like the outcome they weren't overrun by the north koreans but like nothing nothing strategic nothing no big picture like what we had no end goal there uh and that carried on that's carried on for as you said i mean we're korean war was in the 50s so nearly 70 years now uh and it's it's wild to me that like we keep making these same mistakes and we don't learn from history. We don't. We don't take these lessons that, like, we lost a lot of people. A, lo- a lot of World War II vets 
who had gotten five years off from war were sent right back to Korea and, and, you know, passed away in a conflict that ultimately meant nothing. Don't get me wrong without us intervening and stopping the North Korean uh, invasion into South Korea, there'd be no South Korea who ended up becoming one of the best, biggest um, economies and electronics producers in the world. So I don't think the the initial intervention was wrong. Same with like we talked about, we didn't think the initial Afghanistan intervention was wrong, but at a certain point you got to like, we were in Korea for way too long, three plus years that didn't need to be that way. We stopped the initial invasion almost immediately with mm-hmm. I mean, we, not, not almost immediately. Like they, they pushed all the way down. Busan. Busan. We had the Busan perimeter and then we pushed them back, but like we kept going and we kept staying there and there was no end goal in sight. There was no like, in state that we were trying to get to uh and it was just like we stayed there way too long so i think i think i'm gonna be cynical on this whole topic and say that i don't know if anything's ever gonna change we we would i i would need to see us like like trump had trump's rhetoric on american interventionism was absolutely one of his main topics i agreed with him with like he was one of the first republicans to come out and say the Afghanistan war was a disaster. The Iraq war was a disaster. Uh, let's pull out of Afghanistan. He didn't pull out of Afghanistan, which we can go, we can debate whether he was being, if that was campaign rhetoric or he let his generals get the best of him. I've actually read a lot that his generals did influence him too much on that topic. Uh, but he was very harsh on that. And I thought he was very right in that, we don't need if we have bases overseas and those countries are i don't want to say hostile but not they're not all in on us being there then we need to reevaluate whether we really need to be there or not because that costs taxpayers money uh we're not getting it it, it if it costs americans more and i mean this as in dollar value uh lives uh if it costs our economy and uh, like actual human capital, Americans will respond. But like for us, like this, even with it's unfortunate to say, even with 13 service members dying over the last week, they're just political pawns. Like they're just like the, they're going to, they're going to be used in, in a, a political game. And it's not an actual, like we don't actually reevaluate what are we doing in these countries where our service members are dying. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's been one of the, one of the many frustrating parts. And this is uh, probably lowest on the, on the scale of frustrations and then sadness for me, but to, to see how, how flippantly and how even politicians who have respected because they usually don't play the um, silly games as much as others, but how quickly things have just become a talking point or a gotcha moment to the other party um, when really, again, like you said, it should be a moment of sobriety that says we have to rethink how we're doing things and why, you know, like on, on our whole, you know, our whole first episode. And this is what I think we need. We need all of our politicians to answer. What are your principles for foreign policy? What, what are the principles you have that's going to determine if you send troops into harm's way? And if you can't tell me your principles on that, you have no business being at the national level of government. That's the biggest difference between 
like national and state level and, and local level governments is you're going to commit us to war. So I need to know what's it going to be. And don't comment on a specific situation because by the time you're in office, the situations change and your answers are relevant. Right. And, and yeah. we kind of, um, for a number of reasons have just given ourselves to what would you do about this situation? And that's not the question we should ask. And I think that's where we, we get into these troubles, right? So even you mentioned like South Korea, you know, I, 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 we said on our first episode, I have five points for, for getting in and South Korea would not have, would not have uh, addressed my five principles for foreign intervention because at the end of the day, principle number one is, the, is this an existential threat to America? And it's not. Um, and I get the, the, I, I understand the argument for, you know, how do you help allies? When do you go in? Um, but even with that, there has to be a, is there an existential threat to America that we need to step in and help this allies? Because if I'm trying, and, and the Korean War wasn't this instance, but if I'm trying to parse out the, the better of two evils, that's a silly reason to get involved in another nation's conflicts. Um, and if I'm trying to, to make either one a puppet, that's going to fail. There's no good long-term solution in that. And we seem to have this idea um, that we have a moral responsibility to get involved. And no, you don't. You don't have a moral responsibility to get involved everywhere else. You don't have the feasibility or the, the realistic opportunity to successfully help anybody, the American people or otherwise, when, when you do this. And then I say, I would just say to any, any politician or anybody listening, um, make your elected officials show you the successes of our foreign, foreign policy, because it seems to create more crisis than it solves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest appeals to me for somebody like Ron Paul or Tulsi Gabbard is their non-interventionist uh, policies. And non-interventionist doesn't mean we don't go to war. It means that Congress does their job and we declare war when we have a war to fight. Uh, but non-interventionist, like, we, we, I don't know how many people know. I mean, Korean War, Vietnam, those are big ones. Uh, the Contras in South America, people only know that because of the Iran-Contra affair. But the Contras in South America, we were actively trying to overthrow governments in South America and install governments we want. Yeah. Uh, the reason that Iran is a theocracy right now is because we purposely overthrew their democratically elected government and installed yep. a friendly Shah uh, that was terrible to the people. And then they rose up and overthrew him and became the country we know today. Uh, like it, we, we've seen this back, we've seen this backfire over and over and over again. And it just blows my mind that, uh, we're still in this business of telling other countries what to do. Uh, and I don't, I don't know. I, again, I'm very cynical on lessons learned and that sort of thing. So, uh, one yeah. point I did want to, one point I didn't want, I mean, if you have anything to say about, well, you could, you made a point earlier, you know, I think it, it's kind of worth nuancing a little bit. You mentioned, you know, if they don't want us there, we shouldn't be there. And I would say we even have to be careful with that question because who is the they? Because obviously we have, we have friendly agreements with the governments of um, every country where we have a base, but a lot of times the people don't want us there. And we have to recognize that it's the people, not the government that are going to um, 
affect American interest in the future. Right. Um, and in the whole principle, and could you kind of went into the Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Dr. Ron Paul um, kind of worldview is non-interventionalism doesn't say um, it's not isolationism, right? Yes. Yes. So instead of having all these military bases everywhere, you have strong trade agreements so that, I mean, just from an economic standpoint, um, another country's prosperity um, has an invested interest in the U.S. being successful and protected and free. Um, And that's how you create alliances, even militarily, should push come to serve there. Um, and this similar line of thinking was kind of actually discussed in the Federalist Papers when you talk about the important tie between military relationships and economic relationships, but it leads with economic relationships. Yeah. And we've for too long led with military relationships and that, that just creates, creates problems, um, obviously. So what was your one point? No, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, it's interesting. They, they had it right so long ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it'll be an interesting podcast topic, but talking about the Federalist Papers would be is interesting to me. Uh, it's definitely they're definitely worth reading, uh, even you know this far this far along. There's a lot of like when you read the Federalist Papers, when you read Thomas Paine, uh, mm-hmm. Adam Smith, like those guys basically had it figured out almost 300 years ago, <laughs> uh, 250 years ago, uh, and it's crazy that we uh, we got away from a lot of that, but. That's a topic for another show. Uh, the one, the last point I wanted to bring up, or the last topic I wanted to talk about under this, like, do you think the shift of our military to being more drones and more putting less human life at risk is going to increase our intervention around the world because we're not actually putting hum- you know, U.S. lives at risk? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, I think, and I think that's a really good question. Um, but, you know, we said when we first talked about um, Afghanistan, you know, that we were more careless and more flippant in our military response um, because we knew it didn't carry the same consequence as a China or a Russia. Now, that problem is exponentially increased when you don't actually have to risk human cap, like U.S. human life. Right. Um, so the fact that we can do um, quite a bit of damage. um without putting U.S. citizens or U.S. service members at risk, I think is only going to increase both our interventionalist mindset, the perception of safety and greater security, and I think it's going to increase our troubles because where those interventionalist policies land is going to affect real people with real lives and real families, and they're going to have real anger, and they're going to to get that anger out one way or the other. And I think it's just going to make us more careless, sadly. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think what stops us a lot of times is that risk of, of us lives because it's such a political football and, you know, Biden's getting hammered with it right now. But if like, if we if the suicide bombing didn't happen or the suicide bombing happened and it was only Afghan civilians who died and no US service members this would with all even with all the craziness they would this would have been an overwhelming success for them even with leaving behind all that equipment and the Taliban taking over immediately they they would have they would have touted this as like this huge success uh but because we lost lives this has become a much bigger deal as it should 
And I think that subtracting that that risk out of the equation is not going to make us any less interventionalist. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's just there's no way that happens. Uh, the more, I mean, you have to have troops on the ground to hold land in any in any conflict. I don't think a robot army necessarily uh, can hold a country, but it's going to require a lot less. And that means we're going to put less American lives at risk, which is going to make us more willing to do these types of things in the future as, as kind of a hypothesis or thought experiment. Like when we pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban immediately took over China basically said to Taiwan, look at what the United States does, how they support their allies. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because China was basically comparing themselves to the Taliban. Uh, <laughs> but on a different note, like if, if China started to do what they were doing in Hong Kong to Taiwan, would we be more willing to intervene with against China, not a Taliban type enemy, a Ch- uh, one of our main geopolitical threats in the entire world? maybe the main political geopolitical threat in the entire world, would we be more willing to get into armed conflict with them given a more uh, automated AI control, not controlled, but driven army? I, and I think that answer is going to be yes. Yeah. Uh, hmm. The only way it would be no is if we thought um, they would reasonably escalate to where they were taking life and not just shooting down uh, computers. Right. Um, and if we thought they would reasonably escalate, that might give us the moment of pause that we would need. Um, but no, I mean, if, if, if we thought that we could do it without, without losing, um, losing service members or without them coming. Unless it's, I mean, even maybe not even loss of lives. Like if we thought we could do it without them, like attacking our grid, um, and, you know, electrical grid, um, or just causing disruptions in our society. Then, I mean, I think any chance we can intervene, it just seems that we have a pattern of thinking we have the the responsibility or the right to intervene. Um, so unless we can foresee dire consequence um, or election consequence, I think we would probably try to do something. Yeah, I think I think it's trickier with China and Russia given their their capabilities. But like, anytime something pops off in Africa, we're just going to send a drone. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I think it's going to be Africa, South America, most of Asia. I mean, you could argue parts of Eastern Europe. Like, it's going to be, yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be we're going to meddle. Yeah, um, and the we're not paying the cost of human lives anymore, but we're definitely paying a cost. Like, you can't just get away with being in everybody's business all the time. Yeah, and I think that's the real tragedy of of. Um, the real consequences of interventionalism um, are not overtly tied um, to the causes. I mean, and I kind of very briefly hit on, you know, some of the um, humanitarian crisis that, you know, um, leads to so many Central and Southern American um, refugees trying to come, you know, to the U.S. But again, when you intervene in South American countries, Venezuela is one of the more obvious examples Um but for those who kind of don't know how much, you know, Ambassador Bolton really meddled, uh, what was his, he wasn't an ambassador. Um, what was his position? Um, National Security Advisor? Yeah, he was a security advisor. Yeah, um, but it was when he was under uh, President Trump. Um, but yeah, I mean, his, his, President Trump let him do quite a bit 
and, and his whole policy in South America ended up creating a pretty bad mess um, that led to this crisis. Now, when you have so many refugees at the southern border, I didn't hear one person say, hey, our meddling actually is what caused this. It became an issue about border walls and immigrants. And that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the cause. There's a reason thousands of people tried to come to the U.S. And it's because we kicked over a hornet's nest that didn't need to be kicked over. And we had we had no we had nothing to gain other than we thought that's a really poor way of governing. And I feel bad for their citizens. Did yeah. you make life better for those citizens? And even if you did, did you, is that within your jurisdiction? Did, did you have a. I would be a little more kind and say we thought that okay, this government is not friendly to us. Let's put one in that, that is friendly to us so we can... I mean, Venezuela has oil. Let's be real. I mean, it's 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 a meme at this point, but it's true. <laughs> Venezuela has oil. Uh, so I'm sure that, that was part of the calculus. I mean, that, that was almost the entire calculus for uh, overthrowing uh, the uh, Iran government was because they were going to nationalize their oil uh, and take it away from British Petroleum. So, I mean... That's again me being cynical again. Like, I think that we, I, I feel like we got to a point where we were just like, yeah, these governments are hostile to us. Let's put in one that is not hostile to us. Like at a bare minimum, that's like all they, that's all they needed to go on. And uh, I feel like if we're going to intervene, it, it needs to be more than that. It needs to be that existential threat. We need to know for sure that they're they're harboring terrorists that are like. Uh, uh, Hezbollah or or uh, what's the other Hamas? Either one, Hamas. like yeah, stuff like that, where we know that like they're so ingrained in the government and in society there. Uh, but again, those those two haven't necessarily. Well, let me say this: we had the marine, another marine tragedy, the barracks bombings in in Beirut in the eighties. Guess what we did? We left. We didn't stay. We didn't try to cleanse the whole country of of uh, of Lebanon, Hezbollah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We didn't. We didn't try to cleanse the whole country and put in a a friendly government. We Reagan pulled them out. We left. <laughs> like, yeah. And and I think a lot of that we had um, we had bigger concerns than than terrorism. You know, we had the Soviet Union. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, you mentioned, you know, I'm kind of trying to uh, play devil's advocate with Venezuela and mentioned, well, it's a, it's a hostile government. OK, uh, and, and I agree that would be the claim. Now you have to show me how that government's being hostile to me. Right. Or any of our people. How are they threatening my life, liberty or property? I get they do things poorly. I get they're wicked. I get they're that, that um, the Venezuelan people could be much more successful and prosperous and secure under a different form. It's not my responsibility to force right. that upon them. And if we would, and I'll take it even a step further. If we believe that it is our responsibility to force our way of life on another people, how are we different than the Taliban? Who's going to force Sharia law on the, on people? Right. I mean, our, our conclusions are better, but if we think that, that, if we have this attitude that we've reached uh, intellectual status superior to those of others, therefore that gives us the right to do what we want to do for the betterment of others. That's literally, uh, I can't say literally, that's almost every evil throughout human history that says we know better than you. So we're going to force our way of life on you. 
Right. That's and not I, okay. And that's why every every politician at the national level should have to say, here are my principles for military engagement. Here are my principles for engaging in, with other nations. And nobody does that. It's always, oh, I've got a better, slightly better way, a slightly different way to go through the minutiae of this this issue. And it's just, it's just such a failed policy. It's such a bad way of governing. And yeah. What the American people have to do is they have to take all of their anger at this situation to the ballot box and demand candidates that are going to give a detailed and principled way of of engaging in foreign conflict. And if we don't, then it doesn't matter. This doesn't this ultimately doesn't matter. It's going to be the same thing years from now. Yeah. Again, I'm cynical, so I don't think anything changes. But I, I just want to reiterate one of the points you made about. Um. You're no better than the Taliban when you're forcing your way. No, no government, no matter how evil we say on the outside, was doing it because they thought it was the the worst thing to do or bad for their people. They were doing it because they thought they were doing the, like this was the only way. Hitler thought he was doing the best he could for Grand the Germans, Ar- Aryan Germans. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Taliban is doing what they think is best. They are fully fundamentalist Muslims. They think they need to run their country in a Muslim way so that everybody can get to heaven. That's what they think. Like, that's why they do what they do. They're not doing it because they're like, oh, we're evil guys. We just want to punish everybody. We don't want women to learn. Like, that's not if it, that's that's part of the American hubris that leads us to this. These these sort of conclusions and these inter- interventions is that like. If we think that the Venezuelan government is evil and and doing their people wrong, we may be right. We may be we've been wrong before. We're probably wrong again. Like we you you there's no situation where we know for sure whether the Venezuelan government it could ever be improved upon what it is. We might have the best version of the Venezuelan government. There's no way for us to say otherwise. Yeah, and yeah, I think even if you you make a good point like everybody in their own mind thinks their way is right. Um <laughs> and that's that, that's that's I believe an absolute truth. Um, for a number of reasons, I believe that's an absolute th- truth. But what if we had a foreign policy that was leading with trade and economics and not leading with military might? Then we've got, let's just say, a twenty-nation pact um, throughout, you know, Asia, the Middle East, um, and we say, hey guys, like, I, I can't in clear conscience do business and prosper this particular government because right. of the way they do things. Right. So we're not bringing them into our pact. We're not bringing them into our agreement. Cool. We're all going to roll like that. And you do it without any guns fired. You do it without any loss of life. And and you do it without being provocative the way sanctions are. Um, it's just, hey, this is our agreement. This is kind of the way we loosely see the world to where we can at least in clear conscience do business with each other. Um, and I think that I think that is a much more sustainable prosperous peaceful and morally appropriate way to engage the rest of the world and when you have to go to war because there will be times you have to you do it in a way that's not going to make hopefully that it's not going to make people have regrets about the reasons why we went to war and you do it in a way that that the war can very clearly and obviously end to all those who are engaged in it yeah, I think that declaration of war and having a clear and concise goal, and once that goal is met, the war is over. Uh, Congress really needs to get their act together and start setting limits on what 
listen, we we built an incredible war machine and we've we've had this war machine going for nearly 75 years. You don't you don't build something like that not to use it. And so that's where you, we that like I, I say that as facetiously. The the Congress needs to be the one who wields that power. Like the executive gets to work with the minutia, but it's Congress is the one saying, point the gun here, fire the gun. Like that's that's what they re- they need to retake that uh, responsibility and, and treat it seriously. And I think we've gotten way too uh, flippant, as you've said before, about about utilizing that responsibility. And and it's absolutely right. Nothing's going to change unless we change the people that uh, are are supposed to wield this authority and aren't wielding this authority. It's really, I mean, they're asleep at the wheel, and they have been for however long. So, is there anything else you want to add? No, I mean, it's a tragic situation. It's a predictable situation. Um, but, but, but as I say, I'm just hopeful. Um, I don't know if I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that this ultimately leads to sobriety for the American people um, and that we we hold accountable those who we put in office. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of the ballot box? Yeah, exactly. All right, guys. This was a, definitely a more somber episode of uh, the Deep State podcast, but I'm jake at the rake but the a's of four on twitter at thomas black underscore 86 at ovo deep state on twitter hit us up we we tweet each other back and forth all the time about both meaningful and stupid topics uh it's not always it's not always serious between us uh join the discord we have some good conversations we post articles and discuss stuff in there uh, about previous episodes and a lot of stuff about what we can talk about in the future Uh, so join join in on that Once again, thank you for listening. We appreciate all of you. Take care, guys.